Psalm 119 is where we will be, 49 through 56, but it will take us uh, some time to get there. My Wednesday nights, I normally have an hour. Ah, my brother-in-law who teaches the next class would say, yeah, you do an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> so we're going to try to compress that into the 45. Psalm 119, 49 is where we'll move our way towards. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, credited Tolkien and their friendship as a primary reason for his Christian conversion. In 1929, they began to meet, talking about Middle Earth and the writing in general. Uh, The Newsweek article noted that Lewis was having a crisis of faith, and Tolkien showed Lewis an early draft of what would become the cornerstone of Middle Earth. But Lewis... uh, Converted to Christianity in 1931, this is what he, he tells us. And in 1931, he says it was a long one, lasting until four in the morning. He was discussing matters of faith with Tolkien. And soon after, in a letter to Arthur Greaves, Lewis writes, How deep I am just now beginning to see, for I have just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ in Christianity. He wrote this, just looking back, He said, if I met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I didn't mind it at all. Uh, Again, if I I met the idea of a God sacrificing himself to himself, I liked it very much and was mysteriously moved by it. And again, even the idea of the dying and reviving God similarly moved me, uh, provided I met it anywhere except the Gospels. The reason was that in pagan stories, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound and suggestive of meanings beyond my grasp, even though I could not say in cold prose what it meant. He continues, Now, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. And one must be content to accept it in the same way, remembering that it is God's myth where the others are men's myths. He's using myth here, I would say loosely, the sense of writing a drama. Remember, creation isn't necessary and wasn't necessary to the being of God. It's something he did voluntarily. And so he created and wrote a drama of redemption, his story of redemption. And Lewis noted it's really replicated in man's stories of redemption. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the at least the enemy in the line, the witch in the wardrobe is the white witch. And the savior is Aslan, the lion, In the Lord of the Rings, the enemy is Sauron of Mount Mordor, and the Savior is the king, not Hobbit, but Aragorn, right? But there's a weapon, a weapon of death and suffering. Every good salvation story requires a weapon of power. And so we may ask in the drama of God's redemption, what is the weapon of power? Well, the Apostle Paul actually states it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. He says this, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. He's not talking about the bee sting here. Probably more of a scorpion, a lethal scorpion sting, which I've read apparently in Egypt people are dying from. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is is the law. We might state it this way. Why is there death and suffering in the world? And 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. 
Now we tend to relegate God's law to the law of Moses as if Christ replaced God's law when he fulfilled the law of Moses and that's done. But Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 and 21, that while believers, Paul included, are not under the law of Moses, but he certainly honored its customs and allowed him to be a Jew to Jews, yet believers are under the law in the hand of Christ, and he says, which upholds the law of God. So what we have is the law of God that Paul says he's under. And that law of God then is administrated or was administrated through the law of Moses and through the law of Christ. That is, Christ administrates the law of God. And we know with the testimony of scripture by fulfilling the law's demands of perfect perpetual righteousness and receiving the punishment for lawbreakers like you and I who trust in Christ. And the law of Moses administrated the law of God to reveal sin, Galatians 3 and 4 tells us, to point us to a savior, Christ Matthew 5, 17 says, would come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Look at Psalm 119. We'll go there, and I think you've been there, but maybe step back first to Psalm 138, verse 2. When I went to uh, visit my brother in Washington, it's been a while, northern border, really close to Canada, I I thought it funny when we visited the church, they would say, you flatlanders, (laughs) flatlanders, What's a flatlander? You guys, me, me, I'm a flatlander. Yes, apparently. I, I thought it was Midwest, the, the, the Great Plains, Central Plains, flatlanders. I realize it's all from a perspective. They're in the mountains, of course, and they look at us in the, as the, the flatlanders. And of course, if you're moving from east to west or west to east, you, you'd have to move through a lot of terrain and some mountainous terrain to get to the Central Plains, the flatlands of Nebraska. And I'm going to do the same thing with Psalm 119. We're going to, we've just talked about the law of God from the big picture and we're going to move in and look at Psalm 138 verse 2 and then Psalm 119. We'll look at uh, verses 1 all the way up to about our text in 49 to to underscore what the law is. Because really what I want you to, to feel is the uncomfortability of reading Psalm 119 and asking yourself, asking myself, does the shoe fit me? Or does it actually fit somebody else? So let's start with Psalm 138, verse 2. If you had a moment to find it, we see that God's law, his word revelation and his name are exalted above all. Psalm 138, verse 2. It's a great place to start. He says, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So God's name and God's word, his law, his revelation are both exalted. Now we move to Psalm 119, verses 1 through 3, and we're kind of moving in through the mountainous regions into the flatlands of Psalm 119, verse 49. But 1 through 3, God's law blesses the blameless. That, that The blameless that are blameless according to God's law. It doesn't blame them. Does this fit you? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So blessing is conditioned upon Blamelessness and blamelessness is characterized by walking in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, a synonym for the law. He's testifying about himself. Who seek him with their whole heart. Does that shoe fit you? (laughs) I should sit down with you. (laughs) I'm not up here saying it fits me. It doesn't fit me. Who also do no wrong. 
on, but walk in his ways. I think that pretty much nails everybody. The law provides blessing for those who keep it entirely and do no wrong. Now, it also guards the obedient one from sin. Verse 11, Psalm 119. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So it guards the servant of the Lord from sin. It actually captures the heart so that the servant of the Lord is not forgetful. You see this in verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So by delighting in God's law, God's statutes, a synonym for God's law, I won't forget your word. It stays riveted in my heart. God's law is a counselor in opposition to the plotting of powerful rulers. We see this in verse 23 and 24. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So the princes who abuse God's law, who corrupt it, who are unjust, I'm going to cling to your law for it will counsel me. Now it is a counsel. Focuses him on the delight of the law. Keeps his meditations there. Well, why is that? Because it, if you will, is the ring of power. It will be vindicated and those who abuse it will be judged and condemned. So I want your law to counsel me even when the princes plot against me. Now it gives life. Look at how this this law is power. Again, it's tied to God's name. It's not this autonomous law out there. It's, it's been exalted above all, according to God's name. So we'd say that God's name, God's character, is what gives this power through the law. So uh, God's law gives life and strength for death and sorrow. Uh, look at verse 25 of Psalm 19. My soul cleans to the dust. It's at the grave. Give me life according to your word. Again, synonyms for law. Your revelation. Give me life in the midst of death. 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. So it gives life in the midst of death. It strengthens in the midst of sorrow. It also gives life in God's righteousness. Now it ties us in with the very character of God. For this, I want you to look at verse 39 of Psalm 119. 39, turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Now, this is a foreshadowing of what we're going to see later in the sermon from Psalm 69 on reproaches. So if you end up listening to this sermon again, you're going to take notes and go, whoa, that was a foreshadowing. Who's bearing the reproach? And you're going to see reproach in verses 49 to 56 on this great servant. So turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, verse 40, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Well, God is the righteous, just God. And to have fellowship with the just, right, holy God is to have life because you have fellowship with the God who is life. So therefore, in the righteousness of God's law, there is life. Now, we're fallen creatures, and so we have a problem because we've already been struck by that law. We know that Adam had the opportunity to look at God's law, God's commands, and seek the tree of life. And, of course, he traded in for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He rejected God's law. What is, how should the law be responded to? 
to gain access to, if you will, to have this life, to have fellowship with God. Well, we find this in verse 42. It takes us right up to our text, actually, in verse 49. So God's law is to be trusted in, hoped in, kept continually, and loved. Say it again. It's to be trusted in, hoped in, kept continually, and loved. And you find this in verse 42. I'm going to say B. Again, if maybe you're new to Christianity and reading the Bible, we love to break the phrases down even to their nuances. 42A, 42B, 42C, just to help identify that. So 42B, it's the next phrase, second phrase. I trust in your word. Again, synonyms for law. My hope, verse 43B, second phrase. My hope is in your rules. Again, synonyms of trust, now hope. In rules, in the word. 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Is that shoe fit? <laughs> oh, but that's my intention. Mm-hmm. None is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. Verse 47, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I love them. Luther said when he came to God's law and tried to earn God's favor through the law, he hated the law. I think Paul said the same thing. Wretched man that I am. Romans 7, verse 48, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. That sounds like worship, but it's understanding that he's coming through the law, seeing the the name of God hollowed, sanctified through the law. Lift him up. I love your law. Now we've just characterized the power of the law. It gives life in the righteousness of God. It requires trust, hope, keeping continually and loving. Do you understand now why the law of God is a powerful weapon? You see, Romans 2, 6 through 11 says that God will render according to deeds. What deeds? Verse 7, those in well-doing, eternal life. Those who don't obey, wrath. Verse 9, those who do evil, distress. Verse 10, those who do good, glory and honor. And verse 13 says, the doers of the law will be justified. You see, the world's power, it's not a ring. It's the law of God. Well, how's that? Romans 2.15 says that work of the law is written on every man's heart. And the conscience bears witness. You see, when you think of the Lord of the Rings and you think of the ring, remember that mankind thought they could wield the ring, but the ring wielded them. And in our fallen state... Before the law of God, it is written on our hearts and it's promising life. Romans 7 verse 10, Paul comes to the law and he says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. It promised life. Verse 11, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In verse 14, he says, we know the law is spiritual, eternal. He says, it's spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Galatians 3.10, he says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. It's interesting in Romans 2.1, Paul says that one way that man condemns himself or herself and has no excuse is because we judge. And Paul says in Romans 2.1, in passing judgment on another, We condemn ourselves. I pluralize that. He said, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. So the world's power is the law. It's written on the heart. But in coming to the law, thinking we can gain life, it wields a heavy sword against us. Paul says, it slays us. It promised me life. 
Now, we're starting to feel this power in our culture. You think of even misplaced guilt is still the power of the law. Now, there's corruption that happens with victimizations, right? But the feeling that I've been shamed and abused or I had something to do with that, there's still, why would a victim think that way? There's still the law written on the heart that's promising life for perfect righteousness and realizing there's failure, even if I've been abused or been victimized. Or the power of our culture, the power of our culture to call for guilt proclamations, guilt confessions, or you'll lose your job or you lose your place in the university. This is the power of the law, but it's abused. And the problem in culture without the drama of redemption, there is no saving plan. And so it's just a tool of manipulation and control. But the world wields that. It's self-condemning, and it's meant to drive us to see the true law keeper, Christ. Now, the devil's power is also the law. Maybe you think of, well, the great threat is Satan. Romans, Revelation 12.10 says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night before God. What's he using? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 15.56, what the power of sin is the law. That's the power. And to use the law to accuse. To use it through the world system. To use it here, the accuser of the brethren accuses them day and night before God. First Peter 5, 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. How is he devouring us? Guilt, condemnation, accusations. It's interesting in John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life and the pilgrim's progress. John Bunyan writes of Pilgrim, who's not yet a Christian, and he's sensitive because of the law to his sin. And Bunyan, in his allegory, paints the picture of uh, Pilgrim's sin as this heavy burden on his back. And he wants it relieved. He feels like he's being pulled down to the judgment of hell. And Evangelist, appropriate name, um, tells him, you need to go to the wicked gate, which will point you to the cross. And that's where you're going to relieve your burden. Well, well to do man came along and said, where are you going? That's a rough road. You need to go to the city of morality where you'll meet a Mr. Legality and he'll help you with your burden. And so the pilgrim is swayed. And if you've seen the recent animation that's come out, you see he comes to this mountain of legality where the commandments are there. And this Moses figure, his head's protruding from this mountain It's the law of Moses and pilgrims coming. He says for mercy, he says, I give no mercy. I come for to judge and condemn. And and John Bunyan writes that uh, pilgrim felt the weight of his, the burden of his sin, even heavier, pulling him down. Evangelist finds him and says, what are you doing here? This is not where you get rid of your burden of sin. The law is a place of condemnation and judgment. You need to go to the wicked gate, go to the cross. Paul says something very similarly in Ephesians 6, where he says the way to fight against the flaming darts of the evil one, that roaring lion of 1 Peter 5, is to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to remember your righteousness is in Christ. It's the gospel. To have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. You have peace with God through the good news of Jesus Christ. 
to take the helmet of salvation, the truths, the theology of, of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the proclamation of God in Christ, and praying at all times in the spirit, which evokes our access to God. This is how we fight the war against the flaming darts of the evil one. Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. Okay, so we've talked about the law, its weapon. Now, we're moving in to the Great Plains. We want to talk a little bit about Psalms as a whole. My, my goal is to try to help you to see what the early church saw. That indeed we can echo the Psalms, but we echo the Psalms because they are first spoken through the mouth of our head, Jesus Christ. And then we echo them, safe and secure in Christ. So my, my goal is to help you out with that a little bit. First, I want to talk through this, the contours of the Psalms as a whole. My doctoral class this last summer was all about the Psalms, so that's why we're there. I had to outline every single one of these things. <laughs> so, hey, they said we can use it. We're going to do some of that material. So the Psalms are divided into five books. The rabbinic Midrash observes, as Moses gave five books of Torah to Israel, so David gave five books of Psalms to Israel. So patterns of five. Augustine notes the sequence of the Psalms, he says, is highly significant. There's a sequence. Gregory of Nyssa uh, says that the five books exhibit an upward progression, and you do see that through suffering and restoration and what we call the ascent psalms. The ascent psalms are psalms that were fit for moving, progressing towards Jerusalem. In fact, there are 15 of them, starting with Psalm 120, uh, 15 psalms of ascent that would allow the, the worshiper to move up 15 stairs of the temple steps to worship, and they could recount and celebrate the glories of Christ. So that's the apex, moving to celebration. Martin Luther Observed, So we're fine-tuning this a little bit. Augustine said, hey, there's a sequence. Gregory noted there's an upward progression as we move to the ascent psalms. Martin Luther says, the sons of Korah wrote about Christ's incarnation and his marriage with the church, Psalm 45. And we know that because the New Testament is applying Psalm 45 and Psalm 110 to Jesus. He continues, that was my parentheses, by the way. He, he stopped with marriage with the church. David dealt with passion and resurrection, passion, Christ's suffering on the cross. Asaph unfolded the separation of the wicked from the fellowship of the godly. So now we have the Korites talking about Christ's incarnation and marriage. David dealing with the passion and resurrection. And Asaph talking about the separation of the wicked from the godly. Scholar David Mitchell, in his book, The Message of the Psalter, he says there's a theme with the Psalms and the prophets and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He says there's a relationship between Christ as the servant Israel, what he does, and then Israel as national Israel, the community of Israel as a type of Christ. There's a parallel pattern. He says, first, the Psalms begin with one, the announcement of the Messiah as a deliverer for Israel, the Psalms of Korah. And you see that in Psalm 2, the anointed one like pillars into the Psalms. So there's the announcement of the Messiah as a deliverer. And no doubt they're connecting to when Christ is seen as the, the deliverer one, when he first comes on the scene in the incarnation. Two, it turns to the Messiah's rejection. And so we move from the Psalms of Korah to Psalms of David. But Israel is also 
reflective of the Messiah's rejection because when they reject the Messiah, they are dispersed and they face suffering. The Psalms of Asaph. And then fourth, the return of the king where he judges his people's enemies and he saves an ingathering of his remnant people made up of Jews and Gentiles. Four, number five, for the reason number five, the celebration of the king's marriage at Mount Zion. Those are the Psalms of Ascent. So we have an announcement of the Messiah. We have the rejection of the Messiah in in David and the suffering. We have the Psalms of Asaph with uh, dispersion and suffering. We have the return of the king with judgment of enemies and the gathering of remnant. And then the celebration of the king's marriage. And so you have Psalm 120 all the way through just exalting the glories of God. Mitchell continues, The New Testament writers regarded the Psalms as future predictive. David is described as a prophet through whom the Holy Spirit spoke. The New Testament as a whole cites passages from the Psalms more than 70 times. And he's not including implicit statements or parallel phrases, quotes, citations is what he's talking about. But in the Psalms, quoted more than 70 times in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament book. He gives examples, Psalm 91, 11 through 12, which Satan quotes to Christ. It's taken as referring to Messiah's deliverance from the evil one in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. In Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, it's regarded as foretelling his rejection by the leaders. And that text is drawn out in Matthew 21 and Mark 12, Luke 20. In Psalm 118, 25 and 26, it's associated with his entry to Jerusalem to foretell his suffering. And that's picked up. Uh, Psalm 118 is picked up in Matthew 27, Mark 15, John 19. Psalm 110 is referred to him as well. His role as conquering king. That's picked up in Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 20. And you'd have to go back, obviously, and listen to this to pick up those texts. The point being is the Gospels are rife with quotations from the Psalms, applying them to the life of Christ. Someone said that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we're using metaphorical descriptions here of sitting at a table, planning the drama of redemption. A script is written, and that script is placed by the Holy Spirit in the mouth of David to be picked up by Christ in his life, his death, his resurrection. So in Christ's life of suffering, he is speaking this drama of redemption that has been written for him and placed in the very mouth of David. Why David? Because it's through David, as the son of David, that Christ comes. But allowed believers of old, as First Peter says, As the prophets wrote of the sufferings and the glories of Christ, they could look even at the mouth of David and see the utterances that the Messiah would utter in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Well, that was free to to the second service. I didn't think it's recorded. (laughs) Didn't have that in my notes. So what is Psalm 119? What is Psalm 119? Because Psalm 120 starts the ascent psalms that are moving upward in celebration. What's Psalm 119? In the Septuagint, Psalm 119 starts with the title, The Ascent. Augustine noted that. And if I could propose to you that Psalm 119 is a gateway from the Psalms of David and the Psalms of Asaph, Psalms of suffering, Psalms of dispersion and rejection, to Psalm, a Psalm that highlights the law of God and what it takes for true celebration in the kingdom of God, the Ascent Psalms in praise of God. We must come through the gateway of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is composed of 22 stanzas, 
one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza has eight lines. And each word starting the new phrase starts with the same Hebrew letter. Scholars have noted it underlines completeness and perfection. There are synonyms used of God's law, instruction, word, judgment, statutes, commandments, rules, procedures, promises. Promises? Well, they underline the conditions of the law of God being met. Well, who's, who's the speaker? Now we're starting to fine-tune on verse 49. This is, who is the speaker? Start to get uncomfortable if I think I'm the speaker. When I read verses 1 through 3, keep the law with the whole heart and don't sin. Well, Peter in Acts 2 and Paul in Acts 13 preached that David wrote in the Psalms as a prophet speaking of Christ. In fact, they say not about himself, but about Christ. In Luke 24, 44, Jesus told his disciples that the law, the Psalms, and the prophets spoke of him. And if you haven't read to this, Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ, the word of Christ, the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, what does he say? We're to instruct in wisdom. And then he says to sing what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You mean the Psalms that we're to sing is a fruit of letting the word of Christ, the Psalms are equated with the word of Christ? Augustine observed carefully the way in which the New Testament applied the Psalms to Christ and his people. And he said this, there is head language and body language in the Psalms. Christ speaks sometimes in his own name as the head and sometimes in ours as the body because he himself is one with us. Maybe you need help with that. Well, I did. I read author Chad Bird and he provides this helpful illustration. Bear with me for a moment, but I think it's, it's helpful. You'll follow along. He says, suppose I cut my hand or stub my toe. Neither my hand nor toe cries out. The mouth in my head does. Likewise, when we, members of Christ's body, are in pain and distress, the mouth of Christ cries out for us. Our prayers are like our bodies grabbing of the toe or seizing of the hand to stop the bleeding. Christ, our head, prays, and that prayer reaches the Father. Or if my head is bruised or wounded, I feel it in the rest of my body as well. My hand goes to my head to grab the place that hurts. And the rest of my body cries out in pain for the hurt in my head, while my head alone voices that cry. Likewise, when Christ prays psalms that are especially applicable to his situation, like Psalm 22, we still cry out as members of his body, even though his voice alone is heard by the Father, since our voice blends with and becomes his own. Perhaps no verse sums up this intimate connection between head and body better than Acts 9-4, where Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He has been persecuting the church, the body, but Christ the head says, me. So, when we read Psalm 119, and we read these statements of ultimate promise, of blessing conditioned upon perfect Perpetual faithfulness and obedience to God's law. We remember Matthew 5, 17, Christ came to fulfill the law. Remember Hebrews 5, 8 through 9, that Christ is the high priest in relation to the law, learned obedience through what he suffered so that he might be the source of eternal salvation. And so we can claim these promises only through Christ. No one dare rise up and say, well, I've kept your law perfectly, but Christ can say that. 
And so we can echo that in our union with Christ because he, as Philippians 3 says, is our righteousness. But what do we do about confessions of sin, right? What do we do about confessions of sin in the Psalms? Well, Luther had an answer for that in his lectures on Galatians. He says, in these Psalms, the Holy Spirit is speaking in the person of Christ and testifying in clear words that he has sinned or has sins. Kind of step back for a moment. What are you saying, Luther? These testimonies of the Psalms are not the words of an innocent one. They're the words of the suffering of Christ. Here it is, who undertook to bear the person of all sinners and therefore was made guilty of the sins of the entire world. And so this was how the Reformed Church and the early church saw the words of Christ spoken, even in the confession of sin. It wasn't his sin, but he became, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, sin for us. Our sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. So when there's a confession in the Psalms of sin, we look at a great Savior who is confessing even our sin imputed to him. Now, with that in mind, we're ready for verse 49 of Psalm 119. It's going to touch highlights on this. There are seven blessings God imparts through his law to sustain his servant. Notice I keep saying servant because 49 says, remember your word to your servant in the midst of affliction. So seven blessings God imparts through his word to sustain his servant in the midst of affliction. Number one, hope. He says in verse 49, Remember your word to your servant in which you've made me hope. Now remember. It's interesting when we think of the English language, you think of remember it typically is because we've forgotten something. And we see in the Psalms this phrase, this request that God remember. Sometimes it's a statement of fact, God remembered like he did with Noah. God remembered Noah. God is said to remember his people when they cry out to him for help and rescue. But it's important here to remember that, that remember that remember in the Hebrew is not implying that God lacks knowledge or that he's forgotten. Rather, it is emphasizing God's intention to act in a saving way. To, if you will, to celebrate his promise. To act upon his promise. Now in our text, Christ if you buy my argument here, and in him, us, in union with Christ, make request of God to remember, to apply his promise of hope to the servant's suffering. Augustine said it this way, like bringing before God his own handwriting. Now, the English language does have a parallel to this idiom. If my wife was expecting me to celebrate our anniversary on our anniversary day, and I neglected to say anything the entire day. I let, never left any uh, notes or cards or took her out. I didn't say anything. Whole day goes by, and at the end of the day, she says, you forgot our anniversary. You didn't remember our anniversary. How helpful would it be if I said, oh, no, I remembered it all day long. Just didn't do anything. You see, she doesn't really care about whether I remember it or or not she wants me to celebrate it to act upon it right this is this is how we use the language of remembrance to celebrate to act he's he's asking that god celebrate or act according to his word the word the law which you've made me hope now what is he 
hoping in that God has made promise of. Well, if we looked at Isaiah 49, 3 through 6, I'm just going to pull out some of these for the sake of time. Trust me, we'll look at Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 together in a little bit. But Isaiah 49, there's a contractual uh, relationship going on between the father and son, a labor that requires recompense. And we see in Isaiah 49, 3 through 6, first in verse 4, the, the servant says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. So think of him at the cross. He's just expending his life. Now, they're, again, they're writing the script for the cross in the drama of redemption, and we're given privy to this. And so this, the, the suffering servant has said, I labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. What's the, what's the recompense? And he says, my right, my recompense is with my God. He's the rewarder. He'll pay out. Verse 5. Now the Lord responds. The father responds. Uh, and, and the servant is quoting it. He says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, the father by the Holy Spirit, to bring, what's, what's his work? What's the goal? To bring Jacob back to him, Israel, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant. This is the father now speaking to the son, the servant, the laborer. It's too light a thing to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's not enough for me to give you the reward of saving Israel, the Jews. You need to receive the Gentiles. So he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And I want to propose to you that this is what the son, the servant is asking the father to remember. This is the labor. Remember, act upon your word, your law, your promise to your servant, which you've made me hope. This is my confidence. As we're going to see here, you're going to see utter affliction in verse 31. You're going to see indignation in verse 53. He's surrounded by affliction and suffering. What is encouraging him is to remember his mission. He's arranged himself underneath the requirement of the law with the intention of fulfilling it for the purpose of securing its promised blessings. This is the hope of the great servant. He's asking that God, the God of the law, would fulfill his promised wages for his contractual work. This is the hope. I'm doing this work on their behalf by fulfilling the conditions, the promise of your law. God act accordingly. Now, because the head receives hope, we too echo this prayer as a prayer of praise. For in Christ, we too have been celebrated, acted upon, remembered, granted hope because of Christ. So hope. Secondly, life. Life. Verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Now, we've already looked at the power of the law and its promise of life. Paul said it promised life and it proved to be death because my sin reached up and seized the opportunity. It's not because of the law, he says, which is holy and good. The law is spiritual. It's eternal. It's because of my sin. So let us not take away from this that your promise, your word, your law promise gives life. And this is my comfort in my affliction. Psalm 119, 152, it's still in our same text. In 152, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. What is the Messiah, the servant asking for? Well, in Psalm 16, we're reminded of the mission of Jesus. 
In verse 8 of Psalm 16, he says, here's my mission, to set the Lord always before me. That's, that's the fulfillment of the law. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've set the Lord always before me. But then he says in verse 10, that the Lord had promised that he would not abandon his soul to Sheol. He would not be overcome by the judgment of death. Definitively. Verse 11. But here's our life. You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. So for his work, he would set the Father at the right hand and be fixed on him. That's the demand of the law. Love God. He would be faithful. And the vindication of his faithfulness would be life. Think resurrection. Think ascension. Think the point out of the Holy Spirit to give us new life. This is the mission of the Messiah. If we looked at John 6, we would see that Christ said he's come to do the work of the Father. He says in John six thirty two, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me to line his will with the Father's. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. 57 of John 6. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father. Get that? I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. John 5, 26, backing up to the previous chapter. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. This is his mission, to set God first and foremost, which we have not and cannot do. And the promise is by doing so, that he would be exalted with life. He would be the bread of life. And for those who trust in him would receive the bread of life from heaven in Christ because the father is life and he's granted the son to give life. This is a promise encouraging him in his affliction, he says in verse 50, right? This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Now look at Psalm 22. I want you to see the affliction here in Psalm 22, verses 12 through 13. And then we'll look at 24, verse 24. So Psalm 22, verse 12 through 13. Let's look at this affliction. This is a messianic psalm that's quoted heavily in the Gospels. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. That's got some rich contextual history there to describe the satanic powers. The bulls of Bashan. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I can't help but think of Daniel being thrown in the lion's den and God reverses the tables, right? Judges the political leaders by the lions and delivers Daniel by the lions. They become the means of salvation for him from the political leaders and judgment to the political leaders. Here we have the satanic powers, those in John 1 that Christ had come to who were his own that did not receive him because he's the creator. They reject him. So we too uh, are represented there as Jew and Gentile surrounding Jesus Christ as roaring lions. In verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. That is, as he looks at us and our affliction underneath the demand of the law and its condemnation and judgment, he didn't despise us. And he has not hidden his face from him. That's fascinating. Now he's moved to the head. He moved from the body. That is, he, he, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, the afflicted ones. 
22 tells us that those are those who are, are going to be brought as brothers who will praise him. So we know there's plurality here. So he's moved from the corporate, those afflicted, now to the singular Christ, I would suggest, because of the way the New Testament applies Psalm 22 to Jesus. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. That is, that Christ is identified with our afflictions, and God has not despised our afflictions or rejected us in our afflictions, but he has, in his visitation of Christ with our afflictions, he has so answered us and heard us. In fact, verse 31 says, this is to be proclaimed to even a people unborn, that he has done it. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4, that we've been, in 5, that we've been made alive together with Christ because he has fulfilled the work, the mission, kept the law, set God before his right hand. And we're joined with Christ as the one who's paid that debt and fulfilled righteousness. We too now are made alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Third, steadfastness. Steadfastness, verse 51. This is the blessing that comes from the law, the servant clinging to the law of God. The insolent utterly deride me. So the prideful, the arrogant. He's really intensified this derision and mockery by adding the term uh, utterly deride me. It's emphasizing a very strong emphasis of persecution and suffering. So not only is he in affliction and comforted by the promise of the law to give life, verse 50, but now he's under utter derision, oppressive mockery. But notice what he says. But I do not turn away from your law. I'm holding on to the law. Think of Christ on the cross uh, in our affliction because our guilt and sin has been imputed to his account. The enemies uh, surround him. Us two are there, if you will, represented in the Jew and Gentile, represented in Christ, joining the throng of demonic powers, utterly deriding him, saying, if you've saved others, then save yourself, which is a temptation to uh, abandon a trust in God's plan, but to do it himself which would be to reject the law. He says, I don't turn from your law. I will be steadfast. I will hold to it. Where do we see this? Look with me at Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 1. Psalm 69 is picked up in the New Testament. Think of the suffering Messiah. It's hard not to read this without... Compassion, passion, amazement that the creator, the king would become our savior and to take this for us. And the psalmist, the Holy Spirit is giving us the depiction of drowning. Think of drowning under the weight of our sin. Drowning under the weight of God's wrath for our sin. It says in verse one, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out and my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God, right? Waiting on the promise of life. It's got to finish the mission. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Not just those who are present, but all of humanity and Adam following satanic powers and rejection of Christ. Throughout all of history, mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Verse 6, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. 
Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 2, that God has hidden his wisdom in the foolishness of the world and hidden his power in the weakness of the world. And so his prayer is that those who look to him, the elect, the, his children, his seed, would not apprise God in the, in, in the view of this, this suffering, despicable Savior, but would see him as the suffering substitute Savior. So his plea, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Let not those who see you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. That's picked up in this text that we're looking at. He says he's a house. His house is a house of estrangement. An alien to my mother's sons. For zeal, you've seen this text before, for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now the church, early church picked up on this and they recognized that not only was Christ on the cross hung between heaven and earth, a symbol as those have noted, that he's rejected by earth and rejected by heaven because he bore our sins as the suffering Savior. He's hung between heaven and earth to bear our sins. But also, based on this text, it says here again in verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproach you, all the dishonor that we as sinners, as enemies of God, have reproached God with and shamed Him with, the glorious benevolent God, the giver of life, in fact, even in a sin-cursed world, He's provided common grace so that we can enjoy remnants of His kindness and His goodness. This Father, the church, early church said, the one who was in the bosom of the Father was jealous for the honor of the Father. And so He willingly said, Father, let me come and bear the reproaches that are meant for you from this people. Let them fall on me. So not only was He standing there on our behalf, but He's standing there on the Father's behalf. And what did it do? Verse 19, reproaches that were meant for the Father as we, 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 we oppose Him, we reject Him, we rebel against Him, we, we mock Him, we grumble and complain and dishonor Him. He says in verse 19, after talking about those reproaches falling on Him, He says in verse 19, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. Verse 26, they persecute Him whom you have struck down. You've struck down for, for sinners and they jump on that to persecute, not understanding what the servant is doing. Verse 29, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. There's his, it's the promise of life. You're going to rescue me. I'm going to come through this work. I'm going to fulfill the mission. And your law, your eternal law is promised that those who obey, there's life. And I am the obedient servant. And I am not going to turn from your law. I'm not going to save myself. I'm going to stay right here and bear reproaches. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that this is beyond the scope of the world to understand. And he says in verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. He says that even if the rulers of this age had understood this, that through it they were doomed to pass away. They wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 2. You can't be steadfast enough. I can't be steadfast enough. But that's not the point. The point is he was steadfast. You will turn from the law. You will succumb. Your knees will buckle. 
but you have a steadfast Savior who's righteous and did not turn from the law. That is our hope. That is our confidence. It's not our faithfulness, it's his steadfastness. Fourthly, comfort. Comfort. Verse 52. When I think of your rules from of old, the word there is alam, it's eternality, it's ancient of days. I take comfort, O Lord. Okay, who in the world can take comfort from the ancient of days, from the law, which is equated with the ancient of days, an eternal law, an everlasting law? Who could derive comfort from eternity? How about Micah 5, 2? Right, Micah 5, 2? From Bethlehem, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Christ, the ancient one, the eternal one, is deriving comfort from the law, which is eternal, because he knows the law reflects God's name and God's character. And he's hollowing it there at the cross. And the promise is life. And he's not going to turn aside from it. He's going to stay on mission for our sakes and for the Father's glory. What a beautiful Savior. What are you comforted by? Jesus was comforted by the security and eternality of God's law. And the more we live in a culture that compromises, it's progressive, and you start going, where, where is the law? It's changing. Cancel it out for this. Cancel it out for that. You start to go, I love justice. I love the eternal law. But you start realizing, well, wait a minute. It smites me because this shoe doesn't fit me. It fits the servant and the head. And I have been united with Christ, and so I can lay claim to this law in Christ Jesus Its penalty has been paid. Its righteous requirement has been fulfilled. I am secure for eternity. Fifth, burning indignation. Verse 53. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Do you hate sin enough? You never will. We don't understand the infinite value and worth of of the one that we've sinned against in his law. How could we ever understand what is required to hate sin to be seized by the horror and torment are synonyms for this word of indignation. Christ, Christ had a zeal for God, Psalm 69, 9. He understood the torment of sin against God. This is the one we lay claim to. And notice the hot indignation that seizes him because of the wicked is connected to, I don't forsake your law. It's because of law-breaking Sixth, praise. What's he doing there? Suffering in the affliction, finding comfort in the promises of life through obedience to the law, not turning away from it, meditating on the law from of old, from eternity, seized with the wickedness of sin, even as he's burying our guilt and suffering, and he understands its worth. He understands the weightiness of sin because he's taking the wrath that it deserves. And praise God, brothers and sisters, we won't experience that. So we'll never understand the true value and weight of our sin because we won't understand it in relationship and in proportion to the measure of God and his law. But Christ does. And so what is he doing is he's there trusting, being comforted, meditating, being seized by the zeal for the Lord. He's singing. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs. The law is a song. The law that Psalm 119, 
Verse 89 says, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. The law that secures even creation itself, that gives the moral order of the universe, that allows there to be harmony, melody, to be unity and distinction, found, is founded on the law of God, to understand beauty and organization, order, Psalm 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice, the foundation of your throne. And what is he doing? He is taking the statutes and they're turned into songs in the house of my sojourning. See, the Bible tells us he had no place to lay his head. So his house was alienation. When he stepped from the starry skies of heaven, he entered the womb of a virgin. And then he was born in a manger. He was born in a cave. His surroundings were animals and it was the lowly reject shepherds that gathered to praise and worship him. And then he goes to the, to the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, wanders in his life of suffering, bearing the sufferings of others as he heals, touches them, pities and comforts. And then he goes to the cross, ultimately rejected, and then to the grave where he's given the promise that he will not be abandoned under the indefinite judgment of death, but will overcome because of his obedience. That was his house. And the law is his song. And the law is not our song. It is our song now in Christ. We sing new songs because now we're in Jesus Christ and we can say that that law that was against us is now for us. That inflexibility against us is now inflexibly for us because Christ has met it. Verse 55 and 56. Name. What is he praising? Seventhly, God's name. God's name. Notice how it's connected with the law. It's like Psalm 138, verse 2. I remember your name. So think of, we've seen remembrance a number of times here. And again, it's not because I forgot. I celebrate your name. I'm acting on your name. I'm making your name holy. In the night, O Lord, is it any wonder that in the, the at the cross, darkness covered the face of the heavens? Even in the dark nights of judgment bearing wrath for us, he's hollowing the name of God and keeping your law. Now notice the conditions here. Guys, I don't know about you, but my shoe, this, this does not fit me. It doesn't fit my feet. It only fits one. Verse 56, this blessing, so all that's been promised here, has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Uh, translations, Hebrew preposition emphasizing it's because or for this reason. Why do all these things fall to him favorably? Because he has kept the precepts. Now we can lay claim to it if you've been united with Jesus Christ. Because as Philippians 3 says, it's not a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but the righteousness by faith which comes through Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful song that I love, Rock of Ages, and I can never pronounce the author's name. Uh, August Toplady. Toplady? Toplady. Anyway, writes this beautiful hymn. I want to close with it. Just think on it. It just beautifully summarizes this. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. He was cut, afflicted. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure penalty and fulfillment of righteousness, right? Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal 
no respite, no. There'd be no break on the zeal that I'd be required. Only Christ could say, the zeal for your house has consumed me. Sorry, that's not in here. (laughs) Could my tears forever flow? Enough sorrow and penitence. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I clean. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And then lastly, this is awesome here because it's the judgment seat. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We praise you, O God. What a glorious servant, the great servant, the mighty servant, the Savior. He's our King, our Creator, and our Redeemer. We thank you that we can come through Christ and give praise. Praise is accepted, thanksgiving that's accepted. Our lives are a living sacrifice because we are in Jesus. Keep us there, draw us back there in our failures because the law is a powerful weapon. But in the hands of Jesus Christ, we have confidence and comfort and hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lord, bless the rest of your Sunday.